This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this episode. We have got uh, one of Australia's leading economists uh, joining us to help us understand everything that's going on in a Particularly confusing time, I think. I think it's fair to say. That's it. We're excited to welcome Stephen Kakolis to the studio. Stephen, welcome. Thank you very much, and I'll do my best to uh, <laughs> deal with um, all of the difficult uh, answers to all the questions that are floating around right now. That's it. Plenty to get through in today's episode. But if you haven't come across Stephen before, he is one of Australia's leading economists, previously working as Chief Advisor for Financial Markets at Australia's Treasury, Chief Economist at Citibank, and as a senior economic advisor to Prime Minister Julia Gillard. So plenty of experience and we're really excited to cover so much that's happening in markets at the moment. Mm. But Ren... Well, Stephen, before we get to uh, what's happening in the economy, we love to uh, ask this question to get to know all of our guests. Um, we like to hear the story of their very first investment. We generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today... Can you tell us the story of your first investment? Okay. Well, it's really sort of uh, one and a half because my first investment was putting money in term deposits in the mid-1980s, so I'm showing my age here, (laughs) uh, as I saved a deposit for my first house. So um, I was putting money in, you know, a few hundred dollars a time. Back in the day, that was quite a chunky amount of money. Getting 15, 16, 17% (laughs) of my savings um, and then using that to buy my first house, which cost... I remember correctly, $66,000. So, okay, boomer, you know, that was my first investment. It was a terrific one. But in terms of dabbling in the share market, that came much, much later. Wow. Wow. There you go. $66,000. 17% on your savings. I know. On your savings, yes. And uh, every couple of hundred bucks, I was getting that, yeah, 16, 17% on the savings. It was incredible. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, don't hate me, please. (laughs) How times have changed. And that brings us to today. So, Stephen, we wanted to start today's conversation just with maybe some general 
thoughts. Um, there's plenty going on in stock markets. Housing is there's always stuff to talk about. Tip of the tongue on many of Austra- Australians and uh, cryptocurrency as well. We'd like to touch on all of them, but maybe if you could just start by sort of summarizing how you think and perceive kind of markets, the broader economy at the moment. Yeah, well, at a macro trend, we're seeing a range of things that even people of my vintage haven't really seen for 20, 30, 40 years. And by that, I mean this inflation surge that's happening globally, but also here in the Australian economy, is seeing inflation rates hit 30 and 40-year highs. So you think about that for a moment. Well, how do you cope when you're seeing an economic variable perform in a way that you haven't seen for 30 and 40 years. So that's one complicating factor before we kick off. The other thing which we're grappling with, I suppose, is the fact that the labour market, you know, the fact that we've got full employment around the world too, that you look at the US unemployment rate in the UK, New Zealand, Canada, here in Australia, unemployment rates are at 50-year lows. So from a business perspective, we know that this tightness in the labour market is, well, it's a problem. Look, it's good as an economist. I want everybody to have a job. That's good news. But as a business, if you're looking to expand, you're looking to get some talent, you're sort of looking still to contain your costs. You're actually confronting a situation where uh, for the first time in 50 years, we have basically run out of workers. And that's actually putting pressure on businesses and their ability to expand, probably putting pressure on wages. We haven't seen that showing up strongly in the official data yet, but I think it's just a matter of time. So we're looking at this, these economic conditions of, you know, pretty good economic times in a way. And, of course, our friends at um, the central banks, including the RBA, are hiking rates and, um, you know, we haven't really got used to that much in the last decade when we've got uh, a series of rate cuts having been delivered up until a couple of months ago. That's somewhat the confusing thing at the moment. You know, you turn the inflation story off and you turn the stock market off and, Things are sort of, you know, for, for throughout the 2010s, we couldn't get inflation in the system and we couldn't get wage increases. And now we seem to be getting too much of both. But um, it, it's just funny that there's sort of like two, there's different stories depending on what indicators you look at. How do you sort of reconcile that and make a complete picture when companies are desperate for workers, which seems to suggest that things are going okay? And then on the other hand, some of those companies' share prices are down 80 or 90%. Yeah, they're getting hammered, aren't they? Uh, look, I think at the end of the day that there's still good companies and bad companies. I'm telling you nothing. You know more about the uh, the individual companies than I do. But in very broad terms, you always get the stock market showing, you know, some stellar companies, some good old timers who will continue to do pretty well come hell or high water, so to speak, and a few of these sort of new ones, some which will be the booming sort of uh, new major companies and some that – start off well and then peter out because of some competitive pressure or they don't quite fulfill their promise and these sorts of things. So that's in a sort of very, in, in a very macro sense. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still a believer that while there's not a strong correlation between performance of the economy and the performance of the stock market, in very broad terms, it's much better for corporate Australia that the economy is growing uh, than when we're in a recession. Interestingly, some of these inflation pressures might actually be enhancing the bottom line of many companies. That you know, One of the things that was evident previously, I suppose, was that if you 
didn't have that ability to hike your selling prices, a big competitor came in and squeezed you and took your market share, you were actually uh, having trouble to maintain your profitability and your margins. Right now, because everybody's in the same boat with high inflation, tight labour markets, availability of workers, firms are able to put up their selling prices, which by definition is inflation, by the way, (laughs) but they're putting up their selling prices and and they are sort of maintaining their margins, which is good for the bottom line, good for the um, the valuation of these various companies. So there's a whole lot of things going on right now, which, again, we're still getting our minds around and clearly stock markets don't like rate hikes and the the bearish bearishness that we've seen in bond markets and yields spiking pretty dramatically in the last few months. But if the economy can sort of muddle through this hiking cycle, get into 2023 where growth is doing okay still, maybe not as strong as we were seeing six months ago, you know, it, it's not a bad environment for uh, equity markets if that is in fact the scenario that comes to play. And so th- that's on the equity market side. What, what are your thoughts on, um, we? and we'll touch on it in a little bit more detail later on, but broadly speaking, housing at the moment. What what are the implications for, for housing? Yeah, lo- lots of issues on housing. Um, uh, a couple of things that I've learned looking at house prices going back, gosh, 40 years or something. Whenever you get a 25% annual increase in house prices, you don't get another one of 25%, <laughs> regardless of interest rates, unemployment, recessions, anything. You just don't get two in a row. They don't, that doesn't happen. So we had 25% last uh, year or up until uh, very early this year. And now we've got the housing market clearly, clearly cooling off. I'm of the view that you know, house prices will, will fall. They'll probably drop. I had this forecast a little while ago, so whatever. I haven't really changed it. Somewhere between 5 and 10% on a nationwide basis. Some cities will do worse than others. Some will do a little bit better than others. But basically, the sharp falls in house prices, any forecast that we, you know, 20 and 30%, I've some, seen some people forecasting for falls in house prices, it ain't going to happen because the other drivers of housing, uh, there's more to it than just interest rates, uh, labour market conditions, which we've already touched on. So if you've got a job, it's much, much easier to service even a large mortgage than having a small mortgage and being unemployed. So the fact that we've got a tight labour market and the unemployment rates looks like it's going to be hovering in the mid 3% region is a good thing for the housing market and something of an antidote to the rate hikes. Similarly with wages, if we're right, we do see wages growth pick up a bit over the next 18 months and you're going to have a bit of a positive impact on uh, household incomes, offsetting the interest rate hikes. And the one which is more of a structural issue, the supply and demand type things, um, you know, we didn't have the housing falling when we had the borders shut and immigration was in fact negative. But we do have the borders opening now. We had a bit of a construction surge previously, but again, that's tapering off. So you think the supply and demand dynamics over the next 18 months to two years will be neutral rather than negative for house prices. So end of the day, yes, housing is going to weaken. We're going to have a year or 18 months where house prices do drop, as I said, between 5 and 10%. Any worse than that seems really unlikely because everybody who wants a job has a job and they can make their mortgage repayments. Mm. Well, Stephen, while we're talking about housing, we do enjoy uh, following you on Twitter and uh, you definitely um, are happy to share a contrarian contrarian view uh, on Twitter. And we screenshotted one uh, tweet uh, recently. Uh, sort of funny that house prices are still rising in Perth, Brisbane and Adelaide. Do interest rates only work in Sydney and Melbourne? And it's a very fair point. It's a, it's a great question. How How do you, I guess think about the mechanism of interest rates and 
the fact that Sydney and Melbourne are slowing while some of these other capitals are, are rising? Yeah, look, I think there is a relative shift in just demand in absolute dollar terms. Adelaide, Brisbane and Perth are cheap compared to Sydney and Melbourne. You know, we know Sydney and Melbourne are a million, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 million, depending which uh, source you use. And Adelaide and Brisbane are still 700 and 800. That's part of the issue, that there are people moving to those areas because housing's cheap and they're not bad places to live, to be honest. Um, it, it goes to show that uh, there are things other than interest rates, as I was just alluding to a moment ago, then things other than interest rates that do drive house prices. Um, and, in fact, I've had a look just if you've got an extra minute to hear me out on this one because this is, this is something that sort of hit me between the eyes when I actually stopped and looked at numbers, like, wow, how, how radical is looking at facts. We have had four interest rate hiking cycles from the Reserve Bank since the early 1990s, okay? So we had four episodes. What happened to house prices in each of those four episodes was that two years after both the first and the last rate hikes in those cycles, in one instance, house prices were flat. The other three, they were up, up to, up to sort of 10 15% over two years. Uh, five years after the rate hiking cycle, house prices were up by an average of 30%. Wow. So what was happening? Labor market was strong. So what we've got now, more or less, uh, supply and demand imbalances were there too. So, look, interest rates are clearly a driver of cyclical element of house prices, clearly, no doubt. You know, the fact that interest rates are massively higher or maybe massively higher will constrain one's ability to borrow. But there are other things that drive it. And just as you've got another 30 seconds, yeah. uh, the canary in the coal mine for housing, I love Perth. Okay. Uh, you know, a city of 2 million people. You know, it's a pretty big, cosmopolitan, great place to live. So it's not a weird, not, not looking at a little country town in the Pilbara or something. This is Perth. Curiously, in the 2000s, so roughly from 2002 to 2010-ish, that decade, interest rates were being hiked a lot. Perth house prices rose by 110% <laughs> with rate hikes. From 2010 to 2020, approximately, Perth house prices minus... 10% in nominal terms, not real terms, nominal terms, and that was with the longest rate-cutting cycle in history. Something else was driving Perth house prices. Mining. The business cycle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, uh, I, I saw that Perth was up about 2% uh, in the June quarter, so if that's a canary in the coal mine, houses probably aren't getting affordable anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not in Perth. And, uh, well, again, the borders have reopened. Again, we've had to just put WA was locked down pretty aggressively during um, the, the COVID disaster, mm. if we can call it that. And now we've got Perth open. People are moving back. Uh, the mining sector is doing pretty well. So perhaps we've got an influx of people uh, wanting to work in the mining area and mining-related industries. So, yeah, and, and Perth is cheap. Uh, compared to most other cities, so even with rate hikes, you know maybe Perth's going to be the be the strong the strong person on the block where Sydney and Melbourne do taper off just out of affordability issues. So let's um let's move on. Um, speaking of tweets, uh, we've we, we've got another one from you, Stephen, and it says, uh, "I'm very upbeat about one sector of the economy, the fiction area, dominated by those forecasting recessions, house price crashes, extreme household." financial stress. I suppose people do love scary fantasy. And that leads us to 
um, sort of mainstream financial media. We've uh, we've seen plenty of instances where forecasting is is wrong. Um, I mean, we even look at some of the commentary from some of the RB, you know, the RBA and central banks around the world. Um, uh, Stephen, context: Bryce has beef with the RBA uh, for <laughs> how wrong they got the last couple of years. He's, yeah, so we've wrong. we've oh, recorded yes, a so number of episodes recently, and he's brought it up every time. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm happy to join the pile on on the RBA, but anyway, keep going. Nice. Well, let's start the pile on. (laughs) Is there anything that you think mainstream financial media gets wrong or is getting wrong at the moment about the economy in general, forecasting? Yeah, let's start the pile on. (laughs) Because the economy is slowing, people are extrapolating that it leads to recession. Okay, you never say never, and I've been around long enough to see a lot of unexpected things happen. But one of the things that central banks around the world are trying to achieve is slower demand growth. They're hoping that the supply chains do start to repair themselves, which they appear to be. Uh, There's evidence that, you know, the uh, production of chips is increasing and freight shipping rates are coming down. So some of those things are starting to come through and hopefully they continue. But the slowdown leading to uh, an inevitable recession, I've seen some people sort of saying, Hang on, I look at recession indicators. Uh, I've lived through a few, and other than the pandemic recession, for obvious reasons, you know, that's nobody's fault. I think you know, nobody could achieve home any responsibility other than it was just a nasty, nasty event that occurred. But when you get other recessions occurring, it's because of policy errors from the central bank. And okay, there's a chance that the Fed and the RBA will over tighten, but gee, they're they're way behind what they should be doing given the inflation momentum. So you can't say that they're ahead of the curve right now. You normally get some of the leading indicators on uh, the labour market starting to turn, and as we've just discussed, they're still going up. Look at the job ads and job vacancies, uh, things like that. Look at business confidence. Now, consumers are a bit more fickle. They don't like paying 10 bucks for lettuce and $2.20 for a litre of petrol. But if you look at and, – and that's sort of fair enough too um, – but as we saw in the recent retail sales numbers, we're feeling gloomy, but we're going out to, for some retail therapy. Retail sales are booming, you know, so I'm not quite sure I believe the consumer sentiment numbers, although there might be a bit of a break in the links there between sentiment and spending. But then I look at the NAB business confidence. Uh, there's another survey, the Westpac, um, what's it called? Survey of Industrial Trends. Nobody looks at it other than me and Bill Evans, I think. We're the only two that do. It's showing that manufacturing in Australia is doing really well. And even though commodity prices have come off the boil a little bit in the last month or two, iron ore is still 130 bucks US a tonne. The Aussie dollar is still sub 70 cents, a huge stimulatory factor for our economy. Our international trade surpluses are around about 9 or $10 billion a month. So that contribution to national income is still very strong. And I, like, I can't see the recession indicators coming through. Um, so uh, we get it. Uh, look, and saying uh, and writing the story, saying I think the economy is going to perform moderately. World growth around about trend. Uh, inflation's going to moderate a bit. You won't get as many clicks as if you say, "Oh, we're heading for a nasty recession." <laughs> and I think that drives the media commentary on financial markets and economics. Well, Stephen, to make sure we get plenty of clicks on this episode, we'll title it something like "Recession." Stephen Kukul's calls recession or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something Inevitable. Recession. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, lol. <laughs> yeah. But look, uh, Stephen, you mentioned uh, inflation there, and I think there's a lot of debate and uh, a lot of media clicks uh, by getting certain headlines. So we'd love to turn to that 
But before we do, uh, so Bryce and I can continue to afford $10 lettuce, uh, we're going to take a quick <laughs> break to hear from our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Stephen, before the break, uh, we were talking about some of the things that financial media and the financial industry as a whole get wrong or, um, you know, perhaps over-sensationalize. And I think one thing that Bryce and I and everyone in the Equity Mates community has felt a little bit lost around is inflation. In 2021, the word of the day was transitory. And in 2022, it's now structural and the new normal. And, you know, there's data, whatever your point of view, you can find data that backs it up. And Bryce and I were talking uh, earlier today about how uh, a number of the commodities have sort of dropped over the last month. Um, and, and what does that mean? And, I guess we're just going to take all of our questions and just put them to you. What are your thoughts on inflation? Where do you think it's yeah. going? Transitory, new normal? Where, where's your head at about it all? Yeah, well, obviously, we've got a fair bit of momentum on the inflation upside. And you know, a year ago, not that long ago, inflation was at 1.5%. We're now heading to 7% by the end of this year. And I think that's more or less correct. And it's pretty much, as I've been sort of analysing elsewhere, that's pretty much baked into the economy. You can't change the momentum on prices that quickly. Now, as you rightly touched on, there's a few things that are happening that make me think that this time next year we'll see some clear evidence that inflation started to cool off. And in no particular order, you know, the policy tightenings will see demand growth soften. So when you think about the mechanism of high inflation, if uh, we aren't rushing out to the shops in the same uh, order of magnitude because we're you know, seeing a slowing economy because of the policy tightening, then the ability of firms to hike their selling prices is diminished and you get that sort of normal cyclical approach to inflation, if you like. I then look at commodity prices you touched on. I look at, and, and again, the link between commodity prices and, and you know, consumer prices doesn't always hold one-to-one, but it, it's not a bad indicator. Uh, other than for oil, which is obviously an obviously headline-grabbing indicator of prices. But oil's stopped rising. It's probably come off a bit. So while we're still paying $2.20 a litre, you know, even if oil comes back a bit, stays where it is, instead of increasing by 30%, which it has in the last year, it'll increase by nothing. Mm. Could even be a slight negative. So all of a sudden, just the mechanics of how inflation's calculated, you know, you're seeing a deceleration. Throw in the fact that you've also got things like lumber prices, significantly lower, you know, feeding into the construction costs. Uh, similarly, copper, nickel, even ag prices, and I know they've been heavily, heavily influenced by the Ukraine war, and that's 
you know, who knows what happens there, that horrible situation. But, yeah, but even they're starting to come off a bit. So I look at the broad indices of commodity prices and see them coming down. And, okay, it's early days yet. They're only off, you know, 10% approximately, these broader indices of commodity prices. But, hey, it, it seems to be something happening there. And if that actually then translates into an ability of supply chain issues to be corrected, you know, chip prices are down, auto production's booming again, so we're all we're all able to buy a car and some of uh, that price gouging, dare I call it, on, uh, on car sales will no longer be there and, in fact, they might have to just sort of normalise car prices. So you look at the mechanics of what's happening to inflation and it's not impossible to see a scenario where, you know, after hitting 7% at the end of this year, we get back into the 4% by the middle of 2023, 3% shortly thereafter, and into the range of the RBA's target late 2023 or early 2024. And, yeah, we'll, we'll be talking rate cuts, heaven forbid. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'll oh, be yeah. the day. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but, no, but, look, this inflation issue, it, it is a big issue. It's a cost of living issue, and it, it is a dampening effect in itself on, on mm. the economy. But, gee, there, just there's, there's a few flashing lights saying that, hey, this could be starting to turn. Yeah. Love to hear that. <laughs> Could be. If um if we do hit that seven percent mark, which you just said by the end of the year, what are your expectations for interest rates by that point? What would what would the Reserve Bank response be, say end of twenty twenty two? Yeah, well they've got such a poor record. I make this <laughs> forecast with a very low degree of confidence. And I know what I'd do if I was RBA governor, heaven forbid, watch out everybody. What would you do? I'd be <laughs> mad on um, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've clearly you've got to have the cash rate near 2% as quickly as you can. You know, currently, as we're recording this, it's 0.85. They need to go hard in the July meeting, hard in April, and get towards 2% very quickly, and then maybe start moving in 25-point increments. So by the end of the year, we get the, well, we get the 7% figure in January 2023. That's when the data are released. You want to have the cash rate, I'd say, around 3% by then. Uh, so another 200-odd points, 175 to 200. And I, I guess the caveat would be if we do actually get some of these indicators on inflation coming off a bit, uh, the RBA would have you know, a degree of confidence being able to say that, look, that will be the peak and we're going to be seeing lower inflation so we can perhaps pause a little bit once we get to that 25 to 3% level. Mm. The more rate hikes to come, there's no question. But, and, and they've been way behind the curve, mm. you know, the promise to keep rates steady until 2024. <laughs> yeah. Like me saying, I'm going to go dry July and I'll get to the third <laughs> and I think you need a glass of wine, don't I? So um, it ain't going to happen. You know, be careful what you promise. So, Stephen, <laughs> uh, in this interview, we've already spoken about how important mining and China's demand for iron ore was in, you know, the global financial crisis and, and that period to get Australia through. I imagine uh, number one with a bullet is uh, Chinese demand for our minerals. That, that'll that be a big determinant. But are there other things that you look to that uh, when you're you know thinking about future direction and, and the health of Australia's economy? Yeah, look, there, there are a myriad of things. You know, we, we are heavily export dependent and, of course, China takes a third of our exports. So what happens there is going to be important. And, you know, the COVID lockdowns seem to be moderating a little bit too, which is good for, for Chinese growth and, and our exports, obviously. A couple of things that are going to be uh, important to me anyway are immigration. What does the new government do with immigration intake? That's a really important issue. One, to address some of the skill shortages, but two, 
I think we had too much immigration pre-COVID, which created congestion, demand for housing, and led to some other concerns and lack of infrastructure that, you know, there were too many people for the existing infrastructure. So we had these problems where we had state governments in particular borrowing tens of billion dollars to build infrastructure as quickly as they could, and that led to some of the concerns occurring in the economy. So there is an optimal level of immigration. They've been relatively quiet on it so far, but watch this space. I know in the budget in October that Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, is going to be talking about that a little bit more. The other thing that I think is important for us too, well, speaking of the budget, is to what extent will the new government try to repair the budget? Now, clearly they've got to implement a lot of their uh, policy promises they took to the election. Most of them were expensive, you know, childcare, disability care. So in a sense, that's going to be money being pumped into the economy as they implement that policy approach. And fair enough too, I think they're all legitimate policy issues. But then the question is, well, what do they do to try to save money? At this stage, all they're doing is the inverted commas, getting rid of waste and rorts. That's a couple of billion bucks. It's not a big issue. And they're going to collect extra tax from multinationals. Again, might be a billion or two. And when you're talking about budget deficits of 40, 50, 60 billion, it's handy. Of course, don't get me wrong. You don't waste $1 if you're a, a treasurer, or hopefully you don't. But they're not really the, the big ticket items. So I'm just wondering... Will we see a bit more restrictive fiscal policy coming into play once we get the, the new government entrenched, they start implementing their policy agenda, whatever that may be? To be fair, I think there has to be some budget consolidation. I'm still one of the uh, believers that the budget deficit sort of matters, and when the economy is doing pretty well, you repair it, and when it's weak, you can run a deficit. That's absolutely fine. But, you know, we've got debt on track to hit $1.2 trillion dollars, we do have a rising yield environment, so your debt servicing costs are high. So I'll be looking at that to see whether there's any macro implications for what's happening on the budget. On that point, it feels like you know Australian politics in the mid 2010s was debt and deficit. That was the the tagline. Um, you know, the last couple of years we've really moved away from that, not just in Australia but globally. And you know, you look at you look at a country like Japan, where people have spoken about debt and deficit over there for probably decades now and as long as they can print their own currency they can sort of get through it so why do why do you still think that uh deficits are you know a a top concern yeah well we do have the capital markets heavily dependent on what bond yields do and in fact one of the interesting issues that's been negative for equity markets in the last six months is the end of it's not just the interest rate hikes from the central banks it's the end of qe Hmm. Uh, and the beginnings in some instances of QT, quantitative tightening. So in a sense, it sort of of matters. And while I can reinstitute quantitative easing and these sorts of things, you know, you want to have a budget position where you're not allocating, you know, $25 billion a year just on interest payments on the level of government debt. The mechanism's still there. Uh, In a high inflation environment, you don't want fiscal policy to be pumping extra money into the economy. And for those believers in modern monetary theory, you know, they they don't really have a solution for the high inflation uh, dilemma that we're confronting right now. It's all very well when the economy's weak. Sure, print money and don't worry about it, we print our own money. Um, But when the economy's got this inflationary, you know, problem, you do need to use interest rates, you do need to use fiscal policy to to take that heat out of the economy. So, again, it's not an urgent problem. Like, I don't think we need to fix the budget tomorrow. Um, but if if the economy can maintain a year or two or three of decent economic growth, 
you'd be erring on the side of getting towards a balanced mm. budget rather than keeping budget deficits at 50, 60, 70 billion a year. Well, Stephen, unfortunately, we have run out of time. So, I'd like to absolutely thank you for sharing yours uh, with our community today. Make sure you go and uh, follow Stephen on Twitter. Stephen could call us the the Kook, K-O-U-K is his handle. But we do have one final question uh, that we, we've, we've got to ask, and that is your thoughts around cryptocurrency. There's uh, It's one asset class that has fallen quite dramatically over the past uh, sort of six months or so, uh, and a number of our community obviously quite invested in the space as well. And uh, yeah, love to hear your closing thoughts on, on what's going on in crypto at the moment. Yeah, I'm not a fan. If you bought Bitcoin for $200, good on you. If you paid $60,000 for it, not so good. Now, I'm not a fan because I don't understand what it's trying to do. You know, is it going to be a means of exchange? Well, not really. Uh, Is it going to be an alternative asset class? Well, not really. We do know that regulators are now coming after it a bit more than they were before. And this is a global phenomenon. That is one of the reasons that will undermine some demand for it, in my view. Uh, Look, if you like it, go for it. Um, I'll keep my gambling to Rose Hill on a Saturday (laughs) afternoon where I'll I'll look at a few horses go around and you know very quickly whether you've made or lost money there, it either wins or loses. But look, for, for those who like crypto, good luck to you. Like any asset class, good luck to you. I hope everyone makes money. That's a nice thing for the society. However, it's not for me. Fair call. Well, Stephen, uh, soon we'll have uh, the combination of two things that you're not a fan of, cryptocurrency and central banks when we have uh, central bank digital currencies. So <laughs> we'll have to get you back on when uh, when Australia gets around to that. I'd love to be back on. We'll have a look at what they actually do. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stephen. It was uh, an enjoyable conversation and uh, we look forward to getting you back on at some point as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, team. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Saving money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 